We have a problem, money. Six years ago today, the United States Supreme Court made the problem worse, a lot worse. Thanks to the Supreme Court, our system of elections is riddled with corruption. Money floods our political system, money that lets a handful of billionaires shape who gets into Congress and may decide who sits in the White House. And as Congress has become more beholden to billionaires and less worried about the American people, just look at what's happened in Washington. Armies of lawyers and lobbyists flood the hallways of Congress and regulatory agencies, urging just a little tilt for every law and every rule. A sentence here, an exception there, and always tilting in favor of the rich and the powerful. Welcome to 10 Minutes on Democracy. What you just heard was an excerpt from a January 2016 speech by Senator Elizabeth Warren on the floor of the Senate on the sixth anniversary of Citizens United, where she laid out steps that Congress and the administration could have taken to root out the influence of money in politics. I'm Jason Franklin, Senior Advisor at One for Democracy, and today is Tuesday, August 23rd. We chose that clip because we're gonna start out with a conversation about a story that just broke yesterday about a new $1.6 billion gift into the political sphere. So that gift went to the Marble Freedom Trust, a nonprofit group formed in May of 2020, which is led by conservative activist Leonard Leo, who was previously the executive vice president of the Federalist Society, which works on legal judicial review and other conservative legal efforts, and made by Barry Side, an electronics manufacturing mogul who basically gifted all of the shares of his company to the trust before it was sold off to an Irish conglomerate for $1.65 billion in March of 2021. Well, what that did is it technically seems to be legal, but allowed them to void all federal tax obligations from the sale of a company. And it creates a new massive pot of money supporting conservative politics. That trust has already made almost $230 million in gifts to other nonprofits, the biggest of which being $153 million to the Rule of Law Trust, which has been involved in judicial confirmation fights. It's an important reminder of the power of money in contemporary politics. And while last week I talked about how Republican Senate campaigns have actually been trailing behind their Democratic counterparts in this cycle, and actually the National Senate Republican Senate Campaign Committee canceled over $15 million in ads in key states last week, which seemed like a boon for Democrats, now we get a news of this new $1.6 billion gift. It's not going to all be spent in November. Most of it won't. It's a new long-term chunk of money that will be spent on conservative politics. But the back and forth of major gifts has a real motivating and distorting impact on our politics and our democracy today. And it's worth continuing to pay attention to. Also paying attention today, um, we're looking back into the states. So both some updates on key primaries and on developments around voting rights. So let's start with the primaries first. We've got primaries in New York, Florida, Oklahoma, probably one of the last big primary days of this cycle. Now in New York was all set to hold its primary at the end of June, but then the democratically drawn congressional map was thrown out as an unconstitutionally partisan gerrymander. 
So they had to delay the congressional primaries. The state legislative already happened in June. And the new map really changed the configuration of many districts. It pulled incumbents out of the geographic base. And as often happens in redistricting, you had a kind of musical chairs effect as people jumped around to different districts trying to figure out where would their political career take them. What it has meant is that at least one incumbent and up to five could lose their primaries today. The biggest race has been a surprise where Jerry Nadler, who has represented the Upper West Side of Manhattan for 30 years, and Carolyn Maloney, who's represented the Upper East Side for almost the same amount of time, are now facing off against each other. So two longtime progressive stalwarts in the U.S. House now fighting for the same district. Plus, there's a whole range of competitive primaries for open seats two special elections, which we'll be looking at to see if they kind of further give us insights about the political environment since the Dobbs decision and a lot of down ballot questions for how do these congressional races impact the future political careers all across the state of New York. Down in Florida, you've of course got at the top of the ballot, Florida Democrats get to pick their nominee for governor. It's either going to be Charlie Crist former Republican governor, who's now a Democratic congressional candidate, or agricultural commissioner Nikki Fried, who's the only statewide victory for a Florida Democrat in the last decade. Very competitive. We're also seeing that in the primaries and the congressional primaries are really about the Democratic or the Republican primaries for safe seats, because actually 25 of the 28 seats in Florida are now solid Democrat or solid Republican because of the latest aggressive gerrymander by Ron DeSantis that he pushed through. So the only kind of must-watch House primary that involves an underdog is in the 27th. It's the most competitive seat in Florida. It's a, technically a D plus one, so just one point benefit for Democrats. And Democrats face an uphill battle as they're trying to figure out who's going to run to attempt to unseat Representative Salazar, Maria uh, Salazar, who's a Cuban-American in a very heavily Latino district in Miami. So watching that, watching uh, Florida overall for how it goes. And of course, in Oklahoma, there are also primaries today. Got a special election for the runoff for the U.S. Senate, where Representative Mark Wayne Mullen leads former state House Speaker T.W. Shannon, basically amplified by Trump's endorsement for Mullen. And then there's the GOP primary runoff for the second congressional district, which was vacated by Mullen. And again, it's basically defined by who can run farthest and most convincingly to the right. So not expecting any upsets in Oklahoma. It's really a question of how far right is the Oklahoma Republican Party going to end up at the end of these primaries. The other thing to look at in the states is around voting rights and court decisions, something I always come back to. And I saw something interesting today uh, or yesterday, the Voting Rights Lab, which does a really great job tracking kind of all of the developments all over the country, sends out a weekly update. They always have a bad news and a good news. It's the bad news. We have no bad news to share this week. It's the first time I've ever seen that coming from the Voting Rights Lab. doesn't mean that everything is great. It just meant it was a quiet week and there was no big bad news. But I'll take hope where I can find it. On the good news side, the Wisconsin Elections Commission has actually reactivated over 30,000 people's voter registrations after a League of Women Voters uh, lawsuit successfully found that they had unconstitutionally purged tens of thousands of voters from the rolls. Also, Iowa's Secretary of State is making grants to improve accessibility in around polling places. But the big news comes from North Carolina, where the North Carolina Supreme Court limited the authority of the state's legislature. Basically, what happened is in 2017, they determined that the legislative districts 
from 2010 were unconstitutional and violated the Equal Protection Clause. And then in 2018, the legislature enacted a set of ballot measures that would have created stricter state voter ID requirements. But last week, the North Carolina Supreme Court ruled that because the 2018 legislature was composed of a substantial number of legislators who had been elected from unconstitutionally racially gerrymandered districts, the ballot measure that they passed had no authority. So this is a complicated, but basically it's an unusual but not unprecedented argument that the widespread illegal gerrymander rendered the legislature a, quote, usurper that legally lacked the power to amend North Carolina's constitution because it had lost its claim to popular sovereignty. The reason I bring it up both, it has implications for today. The voter ID amendment is going to go back to the lower court. The lower court will review whether it intended to discriminate against the same type of voters. The lower court is expected to find yes and will strike down the amendment, which will get rid of that voter ID law. It also is just a reminder of how long litigation happens around redistricting. So the decision we just got from the Supreme Court is tied to the 2010 redistricting, and it took a decade of playing out, 12 years, we're still dealing with it. So we're going to be dealing with redistricting cases that will affect the future of our democracy from 2020 for this next decade. It doesn't end up coming into public light, but it has real important impacts with so many places across the country having such close margins. So something to pay attention to, but for now, a victory from the North Carolina Supreme Court on the side of democracy. It'll also have reverberations for this November because there are two Democratic seats on the state Supreme Court up for election. And if Republicans win either seat, they'd regain the court majority that they lost back in 2016. And it would probably pave the way for a string of reversals on this case and many others in North Carolina. A reminder of how important these state Supreme Court races are, things that don't get noticed by most voters but have real impacts on our democracy. So that's what I've got for this week's review of developments in American democracy. I'm Jason Franklin, and I look forward to talking with you again next week on 10 Minutes on Democracy. Take care. <laughs>